When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Many of us have likely seen photos of the Aral Sea and the rusted Soviet-era ships sitting in the desert with no water in sight. The Aral Sea is now just 10% of its former volume, shrinking down from what was once the fourth largest body of inland water in the world, after what writer Jeff Fernside calls one of the worst human-caused environmental catastrophes. Jeff traveled to the region as a Peace Corps volunteer. Afterwards, he turned his experiences into an essay collection, Ships in the Desert, where Jeff writes about the families he, me- he met, his thoughts on missionaries, and his visit to the Aral Sea, where he saw, quote, a fleet of rusting Soviet fishing ships, hammer and sickle still clearly discernible on many, sitting bolt upright in desert sands as if plowing through ocean waves. Jeff Fernside is the author of the short story collection Making Love While Levitating Three Feet in the Air, which won the 2005 SFWP Awards program. He is also author of the chapbook And Husband and Wife Are One Satan, winner of the Orison Chapbook Prize. His work has appeared in literary journals and anthologies such as The Paris Review, Los Angeles Review, Story, and many others. Today, Jeff and I talk about what inspired his essays, including what he saw in the barren Errol Sea. So, Jeff, thanks for coming on the show to talk about your book. Um, you know, my first question is, my first question is, you know, what, what brought you to this region? What brought you to Kazakhstan in the first place? Um, and you know, what was it like at the time, you know, compared to what it was perhaps like before or like since? Mm -hmm. Um, well, I was, uh, I joined, uh, an organization, uh, uh, here in the U.S. Uh, called the Peace Corps, which I'm sure most of your readers, uh, your listeners are familiar with. And um, uh, in the Peace Corps, you you don't get to choose the reg- the, the country you, you go to. You, you're allowed to pick a region. And uh, I had been teaching uh, at the university level, and I wanted to continue teaching uh, at that level. So um, I did my research, and in the Peace Corps, you can... Uh, at that time, uh, you could either go to Eastern Europe or Central Asia, and I was drawn to Central Asia. So that was the region that I uh, applied uh, to to do my service, uh, and it ended up being in, in Kazakhstan. Um, so this is uh, exactly two decades ago, um, 2002, and um, the Soviet Union, of course, had dissolved in 1991. So when I visited Kazakhstan, it was uh, just a little more than a decade uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And so times were still hard uh, there, which is one of the reasons why the the Peace Corps was uh, involved and had programs in the country. And um, I I heard from others who had been uh, there much longer than than I had 
then, you know, as a newcomer, that times had been really tough uh, during all throughout the 1990s. They were just beginning to turn around. Um, some of the policies uh, that they had enacted at that time were beginning to take effect. So uh, I wasn't uh, entering a country of abject poverty, but it was it was it was a country that had been on hard times, and um, and it, it was it was a challenge. But it was a challenge I, I really looked forward to, and um, the the people I found to be friendly, resilient, and and really really eager to meet uh, Americans and and really anybody from from other countries and cultures, because after the fall of the Soviet Union, everything had opened up and uh, the people were so curious. Uh, so I felt very, very welcome there and, uh, you know, did my, my two years, my full two years as a teacher at a university. It was, it was amazingly rewarding. Well, I mean, let's, let's talk about kind of the, 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 um, some of some of the the hard times the the region had been facing the country had been facing you know and let's talk about your your title essay um which is ships in the desert which is about the disaster in the aral sea um which which, which is one of these um well, maybe kind of less less famous now um but it's one of those kind of big symbols of um of resource overuse of environmental disasters of, of the of the steady shrinking um of the RLC to, to almost nothing. Um, but you know, but let's start with kind of like, so what people kind of know this, this happened, maybe don't know why it happened or what the repercussions have been. Um, what, what caused the shrinking of the RLC and what are its continued effects today? Mm -hmm. Well, the initial causes were pretty simple. It was mismanagement, due to greed and corruption. I think we can boil it down to that. Um, the Soviets uh, wanted to grow cotton in the desert, uh, which is not uh, necessarily a bad idea. Cotton uh, likes growing in those kinds of environments, but uh, cotton requires uh, enormous amounts of water. And um, the Soviets weren't satisfied with uh, planting a sustainable amount of cotton. Um, they, they had big plans for it. It was a big moneymaker for them. And, uh, they simply stretched their, the, the limits of their resources beyond way beyond what the, the possibly could have held, uh, the water, uh, canals that, that, that fed the cotton fields were not especially well built to begin with. Uh, they were essentially open ditches. Uh, a lot of water uh, lost to evaporation, uh, to spillage, leakage. Um, and then the, the overuse of water, uh, too much was being drawn uh, to the cotton fields. Uh, but there was, no, there was no incentive to stop this because too much money was flowing in uh, into the coffers of the, the people in charge. And uh, they essentially turned a blind eye to, to what was happening. Uh, we could see the sea beginning to shrink even in the 1960s. Uh, but they continued to plant more and more cotton, more and more cotton, uh, until eventually uh, the, the effects of the, the loss of water became quite noticeable. And at that point, uh, some other effects began to kick in. Uh, because the climate, uh, the, the regional climate began changing. As uh, the sea shrank, uh, there was less water to then contribute to the surrounding atmosphere. And so the entire region became hotter and drier. Uh, 
and um, which of course exacerbated the problem because now there was even less water to be fed into the Aral Sea. Um, and then on top of that, uh, because of some related issues, uh, cotton's not only a, a crop that demands a lot of water, it's a crop that demands a lot of chemicals uh, to be grown, um, defoliants and pesticides and herbicides. All of this is flowing into, into the, the system, the water system. And as the Aral Sea dried out, uh, of course, all of these noxious chemicals simply came to the surface and began blowing around in these these noxious storms, literally uh, of what we could say are biblical proportions uh, that uh, blew pesticides and, and very harmful chemicals as, as far as the Pacific Ocean. Um, and we're talking Kazakhstan is a, and Uzbekistan are landlocked countries. So uh, these chemicals are being blown thousands of uh, kilometers and miles away. Uh, of course, the effect to the local people was, was enormous, the health effects uh, they, they have high rates of uh, various kinds of cancer, thyroid problems and birth defects and on and on and on. And then uh, finally, there's a, a third effect that's continuing today, and that's more recent, and that's the effect of, of uh, global climate change. Um, in addition to the regional changes in the, in the weather caused by the drying of the Aral Sea, now we're seeing... Um, uh, the glaciers in the mountains that feed the streams that feed the Aral are now shrinking. So um, there's less water in the rivers uh, to even make it to the Aral Sea nowadays. And in fact, uh, on, on most of the time, uh, the water of the Amu Darya and the Sir Darya, the two rivers that feed the Aral Sea, uh, it never reaches the sea. Um, they just peter out into the sands and are absorbed into the sands. So, um, yeah, it's that it's that threefold effect: the the mismanagement, which was due to greed and corruption, and then the the effect of the regional climate changing, which exacerbated the uh, um, the the problem and uh, caused it to spiral. And then finally, the, the global climate change that we see now that is melting glaciers and re- further reducing the water that makes it to the Aral. So the Aral is essentially uh, 5% of what it was uh, 60 years ago. Uh, so this is, we're talking about the fourth largest inland body of water, and it shrunk to 5% of its former self. So that'll tell you the... the uh, scale of the disaster that we're looking at you know and i think i think i think many people have probably seen the the photos of the of the rusted ships kind of lying in the middle of the desert i mean that's that that's what inspired the title of your essay in your book um but what's it actually like there you know on the ground um on i guess the former shores of the aral sea what's it actually like um in in this environmental disaster? Well, we actually saw the ships uh, not on the former shores, but uh, much farther into what had been the sea. And the reason for that is, is as the, the sea was receding and, and the, the level was dropping, the, the fishing fleet, and, and I should back up here and say at one time the, the Aral Sea had a thriving fishery. 
and it was an important uh, fishery for the Soviet Union. Um, so the, the fishing fleet uh, kept retreating to the deeper part of the sea, the deeper part of the sea. And eventually they retreated to a point where they could retreat no more. And that's where the ships settled into uh, what was the sea bottom and where they rest now. So we're, we're talking, uh, you know, scores of kilometers from the original shore. And that's what's so startling about it. Um, when you when you drive across the former seabed for for these scores of kilometers, and then you come out into what is essentially a, a, a desert, and there are camels grazing out there now, and um, and and then you see these ships bolt upright in the sands as as if they were still plowing through water. And it almost seems an impossibility. Um, and the reason for it is, of course, as I said, they had retreated to the, the, the deepest part of the sea. And so as, as the, the sea sank and the, the ship sank, they, they just settled into the mud and settled deeper and deeper into that mud. And they, they just anchored themselves there. Um, we uh, went out to, to, to see these ships uh, with a, a Kazakh guide, Agitai, and he was a local person. He, he grew up in the area and uh, he, he remembered uh, what it had been like. He, he estimated that the, the ships had anchored out there uh, in the early 1970s. So at the time I saw them, they had been out there for 30 years. And there they were, as if they had just sailed out of the port yesterday. Um, and you can walk right up to them. Uh, you can climb on board. And, and we did. And it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's unsettling. And um, to, to touch the disaster in such a tangible way is really what sparked me to, to write that essay. And that was the essay that began the book. Um, because once I had touched those ships, once I had Stepped aboard. Once I had actually put my hand into the former seabed and sifted my fingers through the the sand of the former seabed, I had touched the disaster. I uh, I was a part of it, and being a part of it, I felt like I had to say something about it. I couldn't just let it go unrecognized. So. Um, yeah, that the, the, that's why I chose the title "Ships in the Desert." It was it was that image, and it was it was that encounter with something so. I guess you would say a, a tangible ghost uh, of the past uh, that uh, led me to write what eventually became the entire book, "Ships in the Desert." You know, and you you make an observation in that essay, which I'm going to spin off into into a broader question um but of course you you cut you do connect the disaster in the aerial sea to similar disasters in the united states um things like the uh the uh, sultan sea um and uh i think it's it's a reminder that 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 uh we read about disasters about bad things that happen in other places um and we think it's kind of an it's happening overseas and the other, but in fact, it's got parallels to what's going on in developed countries um, 
like the U.S. But I want to kind of use this observation you make as a as a sparking point for for a larger question, um, which you can talk about this and other things, um, which is kind of how did your time in Kazakhstan change how you thought about uh, about the U.S. and how the U.S. Um, handles these sorts of problems, deals with these sorts of, of social questions? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, I, I have never been one of those people who unquestionably uh, uh, buys into everything that, uh, you know, my own government tells me. Um, so, you know, I certainly understood that the United States, like any country, has its its many wonderful points, and it also has points, uh, you know, areas that where we can improve. Um, but you see those kinds of things more clearly when you have a chance to live abroad. And it was very important for me to connect what I saw with the Aral Sea uh, to the water issues in the United States, uh, because human nature is human nature, uh, no matter uh, what country we're talking about, uh, you know, mismanagement, uh, corruption, greed, uh, this is not limited to any one country or any one part of the world. And um, we, we sometimes, I think, uh, any inhabitant of their own country sometimes becomes a little insulated and begins to feel like, oh, well, we're doing it right and everyone else is doing it wrong. Uh, but the, what I saw at the Aral Sea made me realize that there are a direct parallel, parallels be, to what happened there and, and what is happening here in the United States. Um, I like to tell people that I'm, I'm very, very sad that I was so right uh, about my predictions in the book. Um, at the time I began the book, no one was really talking about water issues to a large degree in the United States. I mean, we were certainly aware of climate change and out West, in the American West, certainly we were uh, aware of, of water, but not, not to any huge extent, I would say, uh, to the extent where it was really an alarm. And uh, I, I, I saw what was happening. I saw the writing on the wall, I guess you would say. And... Um, and I wrote about the Salton Sea, and uh, I wrote about the, the falling Ogallala Aquifer, which is uh, the largest aquifer in the Midwestern United States, uh, which is dropping at a rate uh, that uh, it's expected to be dry by the end of the century. Uh, we're talking uh, an aquifer that feeds the heartland of the United States, uh, the agriculture there. Uh, this would be a huge disaster if indeed the the the, the aquifer failed. And uh, the reason for it is the same as the reason for, for why the Aral Sea fell. Uh, we're overpumping the aquifer and we're doing it uh, for, uh, because we are planting, we planted too much. We're, we're, uh, too much farmland needs to be uh, 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 water needs to, needs to be watered. And, and we're, we're over pumping this very important water resource. So, um, it, yes, it happens here. Um, so I wrote about all of this, and then uh, the book comes out uh, earlier this year uh, during one of our the hottest summers on record. And what, what are we looking at now? Uh, 
Lake Powell is at a historic low. The Colorado River is at a historic low. The Mississippi River is at a historic low. The Great Salt Lake is at a historic low. Um, We're having water crises all over the place. And um, again, I get no pleasure that I I saw these things uh, written in the cards. But my hope... My and, and, and a large driver for, for wanting to write this book is that maybe now we can look at these issues. Uh, maybe now we can begin discussing them openly, but not just talking about them, uh, but facing them, in, you know, creating plans, um, working out these issues um, because we don't have any more time. So, yeah, the, the, the Aral Sea may seem like something, uh, a relic of the, the Soviet Union, uh, past practices of a, of a, a country that is now gone, um, but it's not. Uh, the echoes of it are, are re- resounding around the world. Um, uh, America is certainly not the only place where, where water issues are a problem. Um, uh, you know, this is happening everywhere, and it's going to continue to happen with, with climate change. Um, and it's attendant issue of global warming. So, um, yeah, uh, we need to, we need to look at it. We need to talk about it. We need to come up with some plans now. Uh, so, um, that's, that's pretty much where that lays. So, you know, this, this, this conversation reminded me about another essay you talk about, um, another essay from your book, which is the essay titled, um, the missionary position, which is about missionaries, uh, in Kazakhstan. Um, which kind of prompts you to think about what it means to it's always to, to be a missionary, to be a representative of a certain point of view and trying to spread that point of view in another place. And I wondered if I might ask you to talk a bit about that essay and what prompted you to kind of delve into or kind of just interrogate this idea of being a missionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um... You know, I certainly um, have no problems with missionaries per se. And as I, I talk about in the essay, I, I believe in some way or another, we're all missionaries. Um, we all have ideas that we wish to grow or propagate, um, which is uh, the Latin propagare is the, the root word for uh, propaganda, which has a lot of negative connotations. Uh, but at the same time, it simply means, uh, you know, it's it's action that is designed to grow an idea uh, or to spread an idea. And, and we all have those, right? So, so propaganda p- can be good. Um, you know, public health announcements are a form of propaganda that is good. Uh, anti-smoking announcements, uh, only you can prevent forest fires, you know, these kinds of things. Um, so propaganda doesn't have to be bad. And uh, so we all have a message, and I realized that as a as a teacher in in Kazakhstan, I, I had a message as well. Um, you know, I taught literature, and you know, literature inherently carries messages with it. So, um, you know, my my initial drive uh, wasn't necessarily to to single out uh, religious missionaries, but I did notice um, that there were. A small group of missionaries that uh, were not being as forthcoming about their uh, reasons for being there, um, and and that did bother me. Um, 
one of the main points of that essay is is I really express uh, a desire uh, for people to be religiously tolerant, and I think. Um, you know, it's important for me to honor and respect everyone's religion. And in return, I, I hope that others will, will do the same. And if I see that um, perhaps a certain group is not respecting another group, then, then certainly that, um, that was, was troubling to me to some degree and, and perhaps what sparked me to write the essay. But again, as I got into it more and I began thinking more about it, I realized it, it's really about the messages we we have and how we all carry them, whether they're religious, spiritual, social, political, environmental. In my case, right, the ships in the desert is is has a strongly pro environmental message to it. Um, so, um, I I saw this as perhaps being a key to help us speak to each other in today's highly, highly polarized times. Um, you know, not just here in America, we're, we're seeing it in Europe, we're, we're seeing it all over the world. It, everything has become so polarized and, and groups of people are having such a hard time talking to each other. And, you know, with the environmental problems that I was talking about earlier, and I, I, I mentioned that we, we need to come together, we need to start talking about these problems, we need to start uh, implementing plans. Well, how can we do that if we're so polarized? And uh, the missionary position was about recognizing that because we all have our own messages, because we all have our own propaganda, the ideas we want to grow, if, if we can recognize that, then we can begin honoring that and respecting that. And that might be the key to helping us talk to each other. Because then instead of approaching the other person or another group of people with the idea that I am right and they are wrong, we can approach each other with the idea that I have ideas I want to grow, they have ideas they want to grow, where can we meet in the middle? So um, ultimately that's that's my hope for what the, the missionary position, um, what people will take away from it. Uh, the idea of the importance of religious tolerance for sure, but also the, the, the more broad idea of, of um, the, the tolerance of uh, any idea in, in, in the uh, marketplace of ideas um, so that we can and talk to each other. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of talking to each other, um, you know, we I've asked about kind of kind of your your two big essays in the book, um, but there are also a lot of smaller, shorter, more personal, more personal stories that deal with your interactions with um, people in in Kazakhstan while you were there. Um, I'm thinking especially of the first essay, the very first essay in the book, which is um, about your first host family and your uh, meeting them and simply meeting uh, Etom, kind of, kind of the the head of the household. Um, I wonder if you might talk a bit more just about the the people that you met during your time in Kazakhstan and kind of what it was like to to meet these people, talk to these people, get to know these people. Yeah, it, you know, the bulk of the book is is largely about uh, the environmental concerns and the and the cultural concerns that we've already talked about. But it was really important for me to to talk to bring in more personal stories, and that's why the book begins uh, with the essay Itam 
about my host father and my host family. And it also ends uh, with Itam and the host family with a, with a very, very brief f- essay at the end. Uh, and I wanted those personal stories to bookend uh, the book. Um, one, to, to make the point that these these larger environmental and cultural issues really are tied to personal issues, right? That we can't separate these things out. Uh, what happens in our lives it is uh, the environmental, the political, the spiritual, the religious, and the personal. All these things are intertwined. But more importantly, I, I wanted to bring these stories that were important to me uh, in, into this mix. Uh, someday I'll probably write uh, an entire book uh, only uh, based on these personal stories. But, but for now, we, we, we have a few of them mixed in uh, to this current book. Uh, and Itam... Uh, I wanted to lead off with that um, because he and his family were my my first experience with with the real Kazakhstan. Uh, obviously, I, I had met my Peace Corps teachers, and uh, they're wonderful people. They were the, the Peace Corps, the local Peace Corps staff was tremendous. Um, but I didn't spend a lot of time, and we were were sent right off uh, to to the to the villages and uh, to our host families to begin our immersion training, our language training and cultural training. And um, Itam and his family welcomed me into their home as if I were a member of the family. And um, I I later came to find out that's very typically Kazakhstani. Um, People there will welcome you in as if you are a member of the family. if they like you. <laughs> so evidently they, they, they liked me. And, um, I, I, I really can't emphasize enough how they shaped what ended up being my entire experience there, which ended up being four years long. It, it was all influenced from, from there, the initial two and a half months I, I spent with Itam and his family. So, um, something happens to Itam uh, I don't want to give it away. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, something um, in the in the book that you'll have to read about. But um, because of what happens, um, that also prompted me to want to to, to open with this story because uh, uh, it was it was an emotional event for me that I, after all this time, I I still haven't fully reconciled myself with. Um, so this is one small way I can honor them um, um, for all they did for me but by, by writing this essay and, and leading off with it in the book. So I think I, I wanted to kind of you know, close off our conversation by asking about um, what's happened since since the time you spent in Kazakhstan for the book. Um, I mean, have you kept an eye on the country since you left? Has it changed since um, since the time you were there for the Peace Corps and later as a as a as a fellowship manager? Yeah, well, ev- everything, any relationship you have with with a person or place uh, is going to change depending on your perspective. And if you if you have a narrow perspective, then your relationship to a person or place will inevitably be narrow. And if you, if you bring a broader perspective to a relationship, it, uh, that relationship will inevitably be broader, richer, deeper. And so anytime you're, 
you're in a position to see something from a different perspective that allows you to broaden yourself and your perspective. So certainly, uh, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, going overseas helped me see uh, my own country uh, a little better. And it was the same uh, returning from America and then looking back on Kazakhstan helped me to see Kazakhstan in an even broader light than I had been able to see it when I was living there. Um, so certainly, uh, I, I, I've kept up uh, with it. Uh, I, I got married over there. Uh, my wife is from Kazakhstan. Uh, certainly, it's it's a, a country that's still very important to us. We, we have family there. Um, I, I've never really lost touch with it. Um, we, we've been able to visit only once uh, since since my initial time there, unfortunately, um, we're, we're planning on going back again here soon. Um, but in today's age, of course, we're able to keep in touch with uh, uh, WhatsApp, you know, cell phones, the internet, uh, things like that. We've, we've got a lot of other ways to, to stay connected to people, social media. Uh, you know, I'm still in touch with many of my former students, uh, former colleagues, um, so yeah, it, it, uh, I, I'm, I'm aware of what's what's going on. I'm, I'm happy to say the country has grown a lot. Uh, those bumpy years that that I experienced um, are, are, I mean, largely gone. Uh, the, the the country is certainly more affluent now, more settled now than it was before, um, and. Um, you know, I, I think uh, like anything, uh, you, the people there are, are still looking ahead to a lot of different different things. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too much into um, global situations, but certainly with, with the unrest happening with uh, <laughs> their large neighbor to the north right now, it causes a lot of cause for concern for people there, as it should. But um you know, the, the people there, they're resilient and, and I'm sure that uh, they'll come through fine. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel no less uh, connected to Kazakhstan now than I, than I did uh, during my time that I lived there in, in some weird way. And I think a lot of Peace Corps volunteers can speak to this. You almost feel a pride in your country, <laughs> your host country. Uh, you know, maybe not the same as, as the pride you take in your home country, but you, you certainly feel a, a sense of pride uh, uh, when you, you see it in the news and, and you, you see that they've, uh, you know, something good has happened. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a country that, uh, you know, I lived there for four years. It was a hugely important part of my life during a, 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 a hugely important transitional part of my life. And uh, it'll always be an important place to me. So I think with that, that ends our conversation with Jeff Fernside, author of Ships in the Desert. Uh, Jeff, I actually have two final questions for you, um, which are, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What might the next project be? Mm-hmm. Well, um, you can uh, find me online, uh, jeff-fernside, F-E-A-R-N-S-I-D-E.com. And all the information about my books is there. 
Um, the easiest way to, to buy them anywhere in the world would be on Amazon.com. Uh, so that would uh, be a, a, another resource I'd direct you to. As far as um, uh, my next project, uh, unsurprisingly, it's a, a book set in Kazakhstan. Uh, it's a novel uh, that I've been working on for a while. Uh, I've completed a draft, and I feel it's pretty good. So uh, I'm at the point right now where I'm, I'm diving in, and I'm... I'm uh, given it another run through. And I hope if all goes well to, to have it finished uh, within a year, we'll see how it goes. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia, And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, you hope you subscribe and listen to the Asian Review Books podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Uther Charlton Stevens, author of Anglo-India and the End of Empire. But before then, Jeff, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, Nicholas, thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time, and I appreciate your interest in my book and in these issues. <laughs>